Hello, and welcome to chapter two of Romantic <laughs> Underpinnings. I'm Andrew, and I've just written my chapter from the heroine's perspective in the novel that we are collaboratively writing. Um, before Ashton dives in and reads my magnum opus, I'd like oh us God. to um, to take a quick trip to Revision Rotunda. Um, so Ashton's chapter uh, didn't entirely withstand the research that I did when diving into mine. Um, well, that's a nice way of putting it. I completely uh, fucked up a year and insinuated that the king was stealing from his own self. Wasn't that it? Yes, yes, yes. The uh, uh, Our hero was supposed to um, steal from the Dutch king when, in fact, the English king in uh, that we're talking about was the Dutch king, although he did not become the English king or the Dutch king until 1689. Um, so we've moved the book to 1690. Right. And we're stealing from the French court as opposed to the Dutch court, right? Yes. Um, however, I would like to take a quick visit um, from Revision Rotunda to... Let's call it clarification circle, um, <laughs> because don't I, worry, we're still workshopping that one. <laughs> I I thought that the I thought that our hero was not exactly stealing from the court of the Netherlands and or France, but planting uh, a presumably stolen item in the court as a pretext mm. for war or something. Am I yes. off base? No, I don't think so. I think you're correct. He was meant to like something there and insinuate that it had been stolen from the king, King William, right? We're still doing him. Yeah, William the Third. William the Third. So yes, you're correct. Sorry. I just, you know. All right. So William is in charge. He he just in like 1688, 1689, something like that, ended up as king of England, had already been sort of this prince and stadtholder of the Netherlands or what's now the Netherlands and was like seven different places and a really long title. But um, England just went to started going to war with France in 1689, a war that I know literally nothing about, but we will find out more and more about it because uh, we're dropped in the middle of some intrigue in that war and our book takes place in the August year of 1690. Yes, and somehow through all of that, our heroine is now a dutch uh lady so that's you know just an added fun little piece of the puzzle um in case you haven't figured it out i'm ashton oh and my co-host didn't introduce me that is correct <laughs> and this is romantic underpinnings i don't think you said the title either did you I think that if we go okay. back in the tape, you may you'll, have you you'll may have done that. that. I, I went, you know, um, you know, one out of two, is <laughs> not great, but that's what I am working with today. That's fine, and um, you know, follow us on Instagram and our website. Um, otherwise, I'm just gonna dive right in. Let's explore language, romance, and resilience, and welcome to romantic underpinnings. Oh, uh, one one quick um, visit to caveat cornice is uh, cornice. What the hell is a cornice? Um, 
I think it's it's some sort of place where um, sad sad heroines and gothic novels hang out, if I'm not mistaken. But what? What, what the actual like architectural um, distinctions of a cornice are, I'm not entirely sure of. Um, I'm gonna actually look that up while talking because um, that is how erudite I am. So the clarification I wanted to make, or no, no, this is a caveat. Sorry, we are not in clarification circle. Yes, apparently we're in, we're in caveat cornice, and um, <laughs> the caveat I want to make is that while I was a very enthusiastic fiction writer in my teenage years and early college, this is only the second time since two thousand five that I have written a piece of fiction um, of such a mighty size. Uh, so I'm, and by mighty, he means 1,600 words. I am extremely rusty, so please excuse um, any any uh, creaks and groans that emanate from my prose as Ashton does her best. I mean, it. at least you didn't completely um, insinuate that a king was stealing from himself while he was the king of the country. Yes, however, I did insinuate that you could hang out in an ornamental molding around the wall of a room just I below the I thought so. I was like, I think a cornice is like something that is like, you know, you know, something. Yeah, it's like molding. It's like crown molding. Yeah, yeah. So, um, however, <laughs> I, I like I have been redeemed unintentionally by the second definition of cornice, which is an overhanging mass of hardened snow at the edge of a mountain precipice. Okay, but not totally what you thought it meant at all. You thought it was like an alcove or something. Well, yeah, I, I think I thought it was, yes. It was Colonnade. <laughs> have you read my chapter yet? I, I read the first <laughs> six words and colonnade just left out. Okay. How, oh, well, anyway... Um, you can enjoy the colonnade. I'm going to be just uh, huddling on my massive hardened snow at the edge of the <laughs> precipice. Um, and I think we're now ready to commence. All right. <clears throat> Agatha Von Horn scampered down the colonnade toward Hampton Court's chocolate kitchen. She found a bitter irony in helping to make the sumptuous chocolate that the king and his court would slurp with elegant comportment. The kitchen's small staff had never seen the yellow cacao. Cacao? Is that right? Uh, yes, except I refer, refer to it as cocoa later. As far as I can tell, cacao and cocoa are basically interchangeable. Oh, fair enough. Pod swaying in a tropical breeze and had never heard the songs of the slaves who picked the fruit and extracted the precious beans. The smell in the chocolate kitchen kept Agatha in a haze of sad nostalgia that she somehow preferred to her present circumstances. She reached the kitchen, dipped her hands in a bowl of soapy water, and nodded a greeting to Mr. Tozier. Tozier? Just Tozier. Tozier. Real chocolate chef in that kitchen. I'm on... trying to be fancy. Well, oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, he probably was, too, to be fair, so I don't really know, but I would read it as Tozier. Um, however, um, he was actually the official chocolate chef of, like, King George the First 20 years later or some shit, and I just, like, zapped him back in time. Mm, as you can tell, Andrew much more admired in the details than I am, which, you know, is good, because otherwise the king is 10 years ahead of his time or whatever. Okay. He treated Agatha kindly, although more in the vein of an eccentric hobbyist than the near prisoner she was. She spent the drizzly morning grinding beans for tomorrow's brew and the drizzly afternoon washing the ornate cups and trays for tomorrow's dressing ceremony. 
The staff like to drink their own bitter servings of chocolate at the end of the day, cognizant that only a few hundred people in Europe could know this sensation. Agatha clinked a pewter mug with Hen Helen Pendleton, Mr. Tozier's apprentice and ward. Word of Agatha's conduct had spread through the court, but Helen seemed as impervious to gossip as she was to the Genever? Uh, Ginever. Ginever. What the hell's a Ginever? It is uh, sort of a beverage that's a predecessor to gin. I looked it up and oh. gin wasn't really quite widespread yet, uh, but that's like a liquor that I associate with like both Netherlands and England, so I thought it would be cool, but it turns out around this time people were drink drinking Ginever, which is basically like some kind of weird grain alcohol at 50% uh, alcohol by volume, by the way. Holy it's like shit. totally unpalatable unless people put... Uh, put it in chocolate? Well, no. Put it, no. <laughs> no, she was weird by putting it in chocolate, although there is actually chocolate-flavored Ginever sold now, something else I googled. But um, no, it's flavored by, like, juniper extract. Ah, um, so and, that's, you know, much like gin. Yeah, and that's what supposedly makes, like, the shitty grain alcohol drinkable. Um, and that was, like, a thing in Europe before people just directly fermented the juniper or whatever they do to make gin. Got it. Okay. So I'm going to start that sentence over. Word of Agatha's conduct had spread through the court, but Helen seemed as impervious to gossip as she was to the Ginever that she nipped throughout the day and added to her chocolate. True to form, Helen knew nothing about the bedraggled sailor that Agatha had seen in the courtyard earlier. He looked like he just crawled out of a sewer, Agatha said. But I'm sure he got an audience with King William. Isn't that between him, King William, and the sewer, said Helen? What does it matter to you? He might be a pirate, or at least a privateer. A pirate might be just what I need to escape my father once and for all. I could hijack his ship, or blackmail him, or stow away while I think of my plan. Helen furrowed her brows. Do you hate your father that much? What's wrong with dragging those skirts across the damp cobbles for a few more years? I don't want to leave you, Helen, but there's nothing more for me here, said Agatha. Not in the court, not in England, and not on this side of the Atlantic. I can't put up with these... I can't put up oh, with... Oh, these... Uh, I think I left out the word sneers. Ah, sneers from the painted ladies and puffed up gentlemen. I can't countenance how satisfied everyone is with the colonies and with the king. And now we're treating war with France like some sort of jolly afternoon hunt. I don't understand these things, said Helen, but I also don't understand what you intend to do about them. We killed a king less than 50 years ago, and every day we see William's wig bobbing to and from the throne room just the same. You should try drinking more Ginever. Agatha closed her eyes for a moment before speaking. Drinking brings color to my memories and darkens my future. Trust me, I wish it were the reverse. Even if I can't make the future I want, it's time for me to give up the present I have. The two friends lapsed into silence, and they listened to the ceaseless activity thrum through the palace around them. Helen blinked a few more times than strictly necessary while tucking some strands of hair back into her plain bonnet. The orphaned Helen had been lucky to be adopted by a royal cook turned chocolatier, but she had never known life outside the precarious timelessness of the palace. Agatha's free hand grasped Helen's and gave it a strong squeeze. They sipped their chocolate some more. Their furative pleasure blazed together... <laughs> Yes? <laughs> Furative. 
My bad. Blazed brighter against the drab plaster walls of the chocolate kitchen. Agatha used to drink chocolate every morning on her father's plantation outside Paramaribo. Paramaribo. Is that right? Uh, Paramaribo? I have no idea how you would pronounce the name of a Dutch colony. You would try and make me pronounce all the hardest words knowing that I can't pronounce words. Well, in my head, I called it Paramaribo, but Uh, um, uh, that's purely my own convenience. All right. I see how it is. Just making me work for it. Watching the palm trees sway as the remnants of cool ocean breeze met the oppressive thickness of jungle air. Her father, Jan, had sought respectability in Suriname. Suriname? Is that right? Uh, that would be Suriname. It would also Suriname. be uh, My bad. Y- Jan as a Dutch Jan! Yas! How dare I? <laughs> After a back injury cut short his career as a captain for the Dutch, Dutch West India Company. An 11-year-old Agatha had received word in the middle of a virginal lesson that she'd be leaving with her mother and traveling to the New World. Oh, excuse me. That is the uh, the uh, noun form of virginal, not adjective. So? It's an instrument. Mm, got it. Virginal. But I said it right, right? Oh, oh, totally. But you just emphasized it as if it were an adjective modifying the word lesson. Uh. Um, and it's not her lesson that is virginal. It is her instrument that is a virginal. And <laughs> she's playing it because I Googled uh, 17th century Dutch instruments. Actually, I Googled instruments that appeared in Vermeer paintings. Because I know there's a famous one. And oh it turns out God. it's about some... He, he Like right around sort of the same time, he painted like a young girl taking a virginal lesson. So, you know, who am I to, to, to contradict uh, Jan Vermeer? Oh, my lanta. All right. Her mother, Maria, missed the luxuries of Delft. How's that one? Oh, nailed it. Even more than Agatha did. As they swayed in the hammocks in their private room during the crossing, Maria regaled Agatha with tales of her friend's artistic pursuits, card games, subtle business mechanisms, unsubtle adulterers, and hijinks on ice skates or canal barges. Maria loved the tight social bonds among the merchant classes, and she nursed an increasing dread of life in a vast, sparsely populated colony with few women and no lace makers. Maria had treated Jan with a collegial respect during his brief, but never... Oh, brief visits. Sorry, brief that's it. Man, visits. it turns out I wrote a ton of words. I just didn't actually... Well, I wrote a lot of words. I just didn't type them. But my word count is truly impressive once I fill in all the gaps. Oh, yes. But never with the kind of animation that Agatha observed when Maria was laughing with a group of friends or even arguing with the butcher. Oh, you, I can't, okay. Agatha spent the crossing making charcoal sketches of scales and rigging spiderwebbed, spiderwebbed and rigging spiderwebbed across impossibly, what? Sails and rigging. Spider-webbed oh. across and possibly clear skies as an, clear as my speech. And an impossibly distant horizon. Maria had decreed that a tropical dampness would send her virginal irrever- <laughs> irreversibly out of tune. When their ship arrived in Perry Marybo, <laughs> now it's a gummy bear part of the Haribo family, <laughs> The view of Jan at the dock, surrounded by boxes and bustle, almost reminded them of home. But the five or six sloped roofed buildings abutting the harbor quickly gave way to palm trees and acres of spiny seaside brush. A cold finality, one that she'd done her best to stave off during her dreamlike voyage, gripped Agatha. 
Her music teacher wouldn't appear over any of these sand dunes, and she wouldn't revel in laughter with her friends while their parents smoked their thin pipes. Jan ran halfway up the gangplank to pick up Agatha and spin her round, feet sure on the wobbly planks. He'd kissed her cheeks and told Agatha that he desperately missed her and that he couldn't wait to share her share with her a life in paradise. He'd he gave Maria a curt nod, which Maria returned, before they trundled down a few chests of clothes and books to their waiting carriage. The plantation was a short ride away, but Agatha had never seen land outside the orderly, picturesque canals and windmills of the low countries. Even the cows had seemed picturesque, although perhaps that had been the influence of the art that Agatha had witnessed while scrabbling around the floors of guild halls and neighbors' houses. Palm trees lined the soggy dirt drive to her new home, which gleamed white in a valiant effort to repel creeping vines and squawking red-handed monkeys. Just beyond the big house, law, lay, lay, a long, low building that stretched into the trees. As the carriage pulled up, Agatha asked Jan what other building, what the other building could be. Was it a warehouse? That's the slave quarters, my dearest, Jan said with his most syrupy tone. We have slaves, asked Agatha, like the Romans did? The world here is new, my dear, just like it was for the Romans. We need slaves to produce enough sugar and chocolate to trade with Europe and build our way of life. Have you ever tried drinking chocolate, my darling Agatha? You must miss home terribly, but you simply must try the liquor from this divine bean. God has truly blessed us with this new land. Agatha spent the next ten years drawing, reading, walking, and sitting in the parlor with her disconsolate mother. She was never entirely sure whether Maria hated the moral or the material circumstances of their new home more, but she knew that Maria was unhappy, and despite Maria's unpleasant demeanor, Agatha found commonality with her lonely way of abiding. Maria wandered wraith-like in the halls, ate increasingly little, and received fat packets of letter from Delft every six months or so. Jan strutted around the plantation with breezy good humor, clapping his foreman on the back and making sure that opulent meals greeted his family every evening. He studiously avoided acknowledging that anything could be wrong with his wife and daughter, or the life they lived there. When Agatha was 17, Jan started bringing around Peter de Hawk. Hawk? I was thinking Hauk, but it's anyone's guess. Hauk. I didn't actually bother Googling whether that's even a plausible Dutch name, but uh, mm. I just thought it sounded cool. Okay. The Uncutchous? Unctuous. The Unctuous. Jesus Christ. Son of a neighboring plantation order, Jan Van Horn and Roland de Hauk, Hauk, my bad, I literally <laughs> just asked you, had decided that a larger syndicate would give their plantations greater leverage in trading with the ships from Europe, and they decided further that a marriage would seal the compact splendidly. As far as Agatha could tell, Peter de Hauk's only pleasures in life were the were drinking the fermented fruit of the cocoa pods and shooting the Plas's capybaras that... Not the capybaras! The, you know, say what you will about my writing, and there's plenty I could say about it uh, in the negative, but I know how to paint a villain. <laughs> and Peter de Hauk is um, already one of the great villains in literary history. Oh, I hope he shows up again later. That'll be fun. I actually didn't plan for that, but now he has to. <laughs> Well, he has to get it for shooting the placid capybaras. Oh, my God. They're very cute. <laughs> okay. 
Um, his only pleasures in life were drinking the fermented fruit of the cocoa pods and shooting the placid capybaras that congregated along the nearby riverbed. As an unwanted marriage grew inexorably closer, Agatha hatched a plan of her own. Late one night, she stole the foreman's keys and released all 120 slaves on the plantation, who had been exchanging covert messages with a band of escaped slaves, escaped slaves that already hid in the inland jungle. Agatha correctly deemed that this crime against colonial property and propriety would render her unmarriageable. Jan packed her on the next boat back to Holland. She couldn't enter society among Delft's genteel traders with the stain on her action, so Jan used some old diplomatic contacts to, contacts to set her up as an ornament at the court of the Prince of Orange, still stadholder in the Low Countries, and recently propped up as William III in England. William the Third in England. The Dutch and English... Oh, my lord. You mispronounced it again. It's actually William I-I-I of England. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Don't fuck with me. I already can't pronounce anything. Oh, man. Now we're going to have to have a profanity thing on our <laughs> thing. Warning. A profanity warning. <laughs> oh, if our uh, if our crosstalk uh, didn't do it, the content eventually would, at least That's in my That's true. Chapters. Yeah, we should put something at the beginning. <clears throat> okay. The English and Dutch elements in court both received her as a scofflaw of the highest order, but her father's sway in the colonies kept her in room, board, and expensive hairnets. Hairnets? Why is she wearing hairnets? Um, and why are they expensive? Well, I, I looked up some images of, like, 17th century Dutch hairstyles. Shocking. And um, uh, they get weird really fast. Uh, Again, shocking. Yeah, so... So perhaps in um, clarification circle next week, uh, or possibly if it gets to that uh, in revision rotunda, we'll have to um, discuss what happens when you review the contraption that was on the back of this woman's head like some kind of alien parasite and get me a better word for but it. But I doubt that it's called a hairnet. I mean, she's not like a lunch lady in high school. And she's sort of volunteering as a lunch lady. But yeah, but they no. would have no idea about those kind of germs in 1690. Yeah, no, no. It's totally like, I, I wanted to do this. Probably like this. a hairdressing or like a hair yeah. ornament. I mean, it's almost like one of those plastic clippy things from like Claire's accessories or whatever, but um, but definitely not plastic. I, I, I had this whole plan of like... <laughs> Uh, going into great detail about her like weird mixture of aristocratic clothes um, with like practical sort of volunteering at the chocolate kitchen mm -hmm. uh, touches mm -hmm. to it. But then like draw a contrast between uh, Helen, whose hair is covered by a bonnet and her hair, which is out and made up. But uh, anyway, there's a whole uh, this is this is all going to have to be fleshed out later because it's possible that i wrote in my entire chapter at um almost literally actually perhaps after the last minute yep i know i was there um but you know you could just say like expensive hairstyles um i'm, I'm gonna go with thingies for any now <laughs> i don't know her expensive right. hair thingies <clears throat> doodads fair enough her expensive hair doodads that night, after Helen fell asleep in a corner of the chocolate kitchen, Agatha saw her bedraggled sailor striding toward the palace gates. She quickly dismissed a quibble about packing a few items before fleeing the court, as none of her dresses would help her on what she sincerely hoped would be a pirate ship. ship. 
She followed the sailor out, stole a horse, and eventually tied it up outside, which she could only assume was a brothel. And that, my dear, dear listeners, bearing with us on this interesting journey, is the end of chapter two. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, okay. Do you have anything else you'd like to add or say or whatever? No. Um, uh, after you've listened to this podcast of the first draft, just like walk to your nearest airport bookstore if you can get into an airport <laughs> and um, buy the mass market paperback that will have... That been... is sure to be widely available to you at some point. Yes, yes. Um, I'm pretty sure we can strike one of those deals where, like, the author's names are bigger than the title of the book, oh. like what, like the John Grisham or like Susan Grafton kind of deal. Yes. Um, because uh, in all with two authors, it's even better. Right. Um, Only if I get to go first, though. Even though alphabetically, you should be first. Oh no, I, I'm fine with that. You did the first chapter, um, <laughs> and if we make it an even number, well, according to you, I just don't exist on this thing anyway, right? Oh yeah, well that that's my that's my comeuppance. But also, if we have an <laughs> odd number of chapters, then you would write the last chapter and uh, more than fifty percent of the book as well. Um, <laughs> no, but the important thing is that. When you pick up the mass market paperback in an airport, um, and by the way, our names are absolutely going to be like with that like raised embossing that you well, yeah, get in naturally, paperbacks. it'll be gold. Yes, yes, and there will be like a full color illustration just inside the inside cover of um, a woman with a weird hair contraption being uh, caressed by a, a burly auburn haired sailor. Yeah, but, I think that's the only like. Um visual cue i gave him well i mean i did jack shit for uh oh yeah we have no idea what she looks like yeah also how unsexy is the name agatha we're gonna have to give her a cute nickname well that's why i gave her the extraordinarily sexy last name van horn (laughs) um but anyway what i'm saying here with this huge digression about the paperback which is definitely going to be blurbed by i'm gonna say michelle obama um (laughs) is that when you read chapter two in the paperback, um, the ending will not be quite so uh, precipitous. There will be a little bit more about her um, madcap escape from Hampton Court. And um, you might even know what she looks like, although I sort of was hoping that the hero would clap his hungry eyes on her at some point in the next chapter and just describe uh, in... in, um... He's going to clap his eyes on her in the next chapter? I mean, no, I have one more of build-up where she's probably going to be following him around, I think. Oh, hell yeah. Well, and I have to assemble my ragtag crew, not to give too much away. All right, she can follow him around <laughs> in chapter four. Um, she is going to describe every inch of our hero and um, maybe look at herself in a mirror or something. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. I think also, we- why wouldn't it be blurbed by like Tessa Dare or somebody who actually writes romance? You know, um, that would work and that would be a huge honor, but I think, uh, I think we're going for like crossover success Ah, here. We're going to get all the markets. Yeah, no, this is, this is a a four quadrant book. Got it. So um, every, (laughs) every market quadrant is just going to be waiting. We might actually have to publish the whole thing as a serial so that it builds anticipation. Oh, um, Charles Dickens style, huh? Exactly. All right. Too bad we're not getting paid by the word. Um, 
yeah we'll see we should actually get paid by the minute of podcast um i don't know how we're going to charge our subscribers that or um, (laughs) especially since we don't have any mechanism for subscribing but um please just drive to our house and um (laughs) drop off bags of gold i think that's that's the last message i need to close Uh, with all right um that's all for us thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next week all right bye everyone